Welcome to How To with Communications Clinic. In today's podcast, I speak to John Gibbons. John is an environmental writer and commentator, and for the last decade, he has been writing and speaking out on climate issues, sometimes to an audience that doesn't necessarily want to hear it. We discuss how to communicate a message people don't want to hear. Hello, John. It's lovely to talk to you. And um, we have a very important issue to discuss, and that is our relationship with nature. And that's a very fractured relationship at the moment. What is the starkest sign of where we are now, John? Well, it's it's hard to pick one, Louise. Um, right across the board, we, we've got all the signs of a biodiversity emergency and, of course, a climate emergency. Uh, we're seeing this in in many, many different ways, obviously extreme weather events worldwide uh, and also a dramatic declines in biodiversity. To, to give you a particularly stark figure, um, the Living Planet Index 2020 report uh, calculated that we have lost 68% of all the vertebrate mammal wildlife in the world since 1970. Now, that's over two thirds of all the wildlife basically on the land surface gone in 50 years. It's 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 takes your breath away. And what does the future look like then if we if we continue on our current trajectory what what will Ireland be like in 80 years time? Yeah, that's a that's a heck of a question. Uh I think globally we're heading for what's called a 3 to 4 degree world. At the moment all the climate impacts, all the biodiversity loss that we've currently experienced has all happened by basically heating up the world by about 1 degree centigrade over pre-industrial doesn't sound like a lot and often when I'm trying to communicate this to people I try and use the analogy of human anatomy so for example your body temperature my body temperature if you're healthy your body temperature your core temperature is about 37 degrees so whether it's warm out or cold out whether you're inside or outside your core temperature remains incredibly stable now if that temperature rises to 38 you've got a fever if it rises to 39 or 40 and doesn't come down you die that's how narrow our internal core temperature band for our own survival. So if you think of Earth temperatures in a very similar way, our average surface temperature of the world is about 14, 14.5, but it has risen by one degree. So it's a dramatic change. Uh, and this has all happened really over the last 50, 60 years. And this is the biggest change that we know about in, a, in certainly since the end of the last ice age. So we're looking at the largest change in global surface temperature in maybe 12,000 years. And it's happening incredibly quickly. So to answer your question, looking to the future, unless we collectively get a grip on this, that one degree will become two degrees. That two degrees will become three, and that three will beget four. Now, this can all happen this century. Now, basically, what the United Nations, even organizations like the World Bank, have described a three to four degree world, basically, as largely uninhabitable. Now, um, there was a study, for example, uh, recently that indicated that by 2070, which is just 50 years out, uh, we may have areas of the world, about 20% of the Earth's surface at the moment, that, that is currently occupied by about 3 billion people, will be too hot for mammals to survive in, which of course includes humans. So this is what we're looking down the barrel of, and I guess that's what keeps me um, what keeps me up at night, but it also gets me up in the morning. It, it gets me very motivated to want to talk to people about this, to want to communicate it, to want to get through some of the barriers uh, that we have in, in understanding these issues because they're so, so big. And yet, people say it's very complicated, John. 
when you boil it down, it's actually the core messaging is actually quite simple. So we need to not be not be afraid of complexity, but also not be afraid to point out that at its essence, what we're looking at here is actually fairly straightforward and readily understandable. So in 50 years time, there will be 20 percent of the earth that will be uninhabitable and billions of people live in that portion of the world right now. Why are we not listening to this? Why isn't the penny dropping? Why are we not freaking out about this? <laughs> well, I guess um, I think in my Twitter handle, I, I say that I'm speaking out and freaking out about climate change. I reserve the right to uh, freak out at any moment. I, I'll try not to do it uh, during <laughs> oh, our discussion. <laughs> but but in my quieter moments, yeah. In fact, scientists that I know, activists that I know, I'll be honest with you, we're, uh, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough shift. Um, and it's quite strange, really, because maybe 15 years ago, I'll be honest with you, I was off busily running my own business, uh, hadn't a care in the world, first kids coming along, uh, happy days, and I kind of stumbled into this. So I'm not kind of a career environmentalist who's been banging on about this for 30 years. Uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. The reason I believe it's a good thing is that I have come to the understanding of these issues through research, through reading, through interviewing and through study. Uh, not it is not an ideological position for me why is the conversation challenging the facts are there and the projections are there and they're frightening why is it a difficult conversation i think well first of all that 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 question gets right to the nub of it i think it's a difficult conversation because if we actually let in the reality of what i've just described if we actually take that not so much in our heads but if we let it pass from our heads to our hearts what that means is everything changes. How we live, how we think about the future, how we think about one another. It requires, it isn't about climate change, it's about system change in every sense. And that actually starts with how we as individuals see ourselves in the world. Because, you know, we've grown up very fortunate in a very wealthy, prosperous and stable part of the world. There hasn't, you know, we've been the fortunate generation. We haven't lived through wars, uh, maybe that our parents or grandparents may have experienced. Uh, we haven't lived through severe deprivation and famine like our great, great grandparents lived through. So in a sense, we've had a charmed existence as a generation or two where we seemed like everything we did, things got better. Now, I'm not in any way belittling the many challenges and the many people who've been left behind with this rising vote, but overall, the narrative has been of progress and that's a narrative i've seen in my own life where you know you get more you go from the black and white telly to the color telly you go from the color telly to the laptop etc and that sense of progress what climate imposes on this narrative is profound limits it basically says actually the world is not your oyster and no, maybe you're not worth it. And in, in, I'm reusing that, that old marketing slogan. In other words, you can't have it all. And I think this is a, you, you asked me, why is this difficult to understand? Because that's not what anybody wants to hear. The marketing people, the advertising people, they're telling us that the sky is the limit. Unfortunately, atmospheric physics is also telling us that the sky is the limit, but in a very different way. And we're hitting, if you like, biophysical limits to the pollution that we uh, eject as a result of our, our economic and other activities. We're, we're running into hard biophysical limits there. And what they're telling us is we have no choice but to ration and to, to make do with less. And that message is a tough message because, you know, who wants to believe it? If I, if I said to you, for example, that aviation right across the world, but particularly in, in wealthy countries like Ireland, 
needs to drop probably by 90 to 95 percent. Now, you might say, well, it's already done that thanks to coronavirus. That's true. But what climate science tells us is that the kind of frivolous energy expenditure, like most aviation, that isn't something that is compatible with a habitable Earth. Now, these are tough choices, and that's why it's so difficult. That sounds like a very selfish mindset, really and truly, that we are so blinkered that we want it all so we don't really care about the future generations. You have children, I have children, there'll be grandchildren, and it will directly impact on them. And it's hard to imagine that people are that selfish. Yeah, I guess we all live in to some extent in our in our own little bubbles, in our own little worlds. And that's fine because, you know, we're busy getting the kids out to school, paying the bills, worrying about our job, all the normal things. And it's perfectly understandable that most people don't stay up at night reading about climate science. Um, I'm, I confess to being the odd one out there, but, you know, uh, guilty as charged. But so I, I, I do understand that. And, and, and most people are not dealing with or talking to climatologists and so on. So therefore, this can seem very um, obscure and arcane. And when people encounter somebody like me on the radio banging on about it, I quite understand that their first reaction, especially if they're not exposed to this, is, what on earth is that guy talking about? You know, I've never heard the, I've never heard such nonsense. And I'll be honest with you, being truthful, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I'd have been one of those people put my hand up saying, what has he gone on about the, the rainforest? I mean, for goodness sakes. And I, that's been completely frank. This has come as a big a shock to me as it is to the audiences that I'm currently communicating it to. And I always try to keep that in mind, to be gentle with people, because what I'm in the business of, and people like me, we're in the business of breaking bad news. And, you know, that's, that's, you have to be gentle with people when you do that. And that's what I want to talk to you then. So you're breaking bad news. What is the best way to do that, to communicate the issues that you need to? Yeah, I think, first of all, you have to be empathetic. Um, I've probably in my early days of communicating it, and partly I think this is a reflection of my own anxiety, I think I tended to be probably adversarial. I think I, you know, a lot of the interviews I was set up in tended to be framed in an adversarial way, and I kind of came out swinging pretty much every time. Now, that was probably, as I say, more my own anxiety, my own despair speaking through. And I think I've learned in the meanwhile uh, to, to kind of put that in a can and try and use it more constructively because it doesn't help you know if uh, you know if you're if you're in an emergency situation you've got to remain calm so that people around you can can get they can go through the same thing that you've been through but you've got to help them through it mm -hmm. you said before that you've seen the swing from denial firstly to despair what happened in between that yeah that's a really good way of putting it when i started out on this beat i mostly I almost dreaded, I'll be honest, going into radio studios because it was usually a punch and duty show that I was walking into and I'd just come out angry and, and, and upset and probably the audience just frustrated as why is that guy getting so annoyed and why is everybody so bad tempered? So it has moved past that. I think there's no question we've moved into a different place and I think that's probably where we need to be going. We started with denial. And I think as the penny began to drop, and I've seen this particularly, say, for example, in the last couple of years with the children's strikes and the Extinction Rebellion, and I've met quite a few people on, involved in that, and a lot of them are in despair. And of course, the problem with denial and despair is they both lead to, for different reasons, but they lead to paralysis and inaction. And the problem here is we don't have the luxury of denial and we even don't have the luxury of despair. The situation is too critical for us to sit with our head in our hands and saying, I can't do anything. The future is not 
yet written. I gave you some very frightening stats at the beginning of this uh, show. Those only happen if we fail to act. We still have agency, but I will say this, we are absolutely the last generation that will have agency. Beyond this, our kids, and certainly their kids, won't have the opportunity to change the future the way we do. So in, in a sense, we're we're the kind of crisis generation. We have an opportunity if we get our act together, and that's why people like me... Uh, Communication is so vital because we've got to win the hearts and minds for people to understand. And I find increasingly what you're trying to do is to connect people with their own hearts. I think a lot of people have this in their head. They know, they've heard, they've read, but they're reluctant to let it enter their heart because if it does, maybe that means a lot of pain. It's very similar to breaking bad news, for example, about a serious illness or maybe a bereavement. Uh, To let that into your heart, to accept the loss is painful. But I feel in this area that unless we're prepared to let go of the future that we thought we were going to have, then we're going to have an infinitely worse future. So in a sense, part of grasping climate change is knowing what to let go of. And what we have to let go of are our illusions about a future that, quite frankly, no longer exists. And arguably, Louise, maybe it never did. So how do we communicate the facts when they are as grave as they are without spreading that despair? Yeah, I suppose every communicator has their own bag of tricks. Uh, I try to leave in it with humour. That, that for me, I know it's, you might call it grave, graveside humour perhaps, but I think you have to, you've got to, almost it's like a humour is a release valve for tension and it lets people kind of just, just to, to burn off that tension that they feel. That's a burden as a communicator. I, yes, I'm giving you the bad news, but I don't want to leave you on a downer. I don't want to leave you feeling that, you're, that you've got no, no agency in this. And that's why it's vital that climate communicators also talk about the good story, because we talk about loss, but there's also gain. For example, last year, 1,300 people in Ireland died pretty horrible death as a result, direct result of air pollution. Now, that is coming because we burn fossil fuels and solid fuels in huge amounts in Ireland. That's a huge amount of premature death and suffering that if we move towards renewable fuels, that means thousands of people not dying horrible premature deaths. So I think it's really important for climate communicators to mention and never to forget that many of the things that require fixing will make the world better. It's not that we're trying to take everybody's toys away. So tell me, do you think that there is a point when people's minds just change, like the marriage referendum? There's a point where we say, okay, sorry, like this is the way we need to go. This is the way we need to move forward. Does it click? Yeah, I think I think I think it does, and I think the analogies you've given are are, are really good. Again, I'm old enough to remember um, the first uh, divorce referendum back in the '80s, and it was just frightful and essentially the 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 voices in favor were were drowned out they weren't to be heard and so in a generation that the, those those changes have happened and and to to draw that comparison yes you there is a saying that nothing changes for decades and then decades happen in weeks and i do sense that we're close to an inflection point where we may be rounding a corner towards absolutely profound widespread awareness. And for example, we've seen this in, in the, the richest state, in the richest country in the history of the world, has lost 4 million acres in unprecedented forest fires that are burning out of control. And 
that, for example, is a ghastly climate reckoning for people in that part of the world. But unfortunately, uh, that that type of reckoning is coming for all of us, whether it's through floods, droughts, uh, food shortages, uh, refugee catastrophes, etc. So I suppose going out to meet that type of news, embracing it, accepting the fact that we live in a different world to the world that we thought we lived in, and then getting together. And one thing, if I might add, Louise, to that is, you know, when I was finishing up with the students the other day, you know, I said, look, don't try and deal with this by yourself. Talk to people. Uh, Confide in others, because I say this stuff is toxic. This knowledge can be very corrosive for an individual. And what you need to do is to join support networks, join up with people, join a, a an environmental NGO, whatever it takes, whatever works for you to help you to relieve your stress because by itself, that stress is, as I say, it's corrosive and it's toxic. But put together with other people, you can find energy to change. And the difficulty here, by the way, the probably some people say the most powerful force in the universe is gravity. I believe it's inertia, by which I mean the tendency of humans to do today what we did yesterday and the day before. So the kind of changes, when people talk about climate change, we what we mean is we're going to have to change all our systems, we're going to have to rethink things, and that type of change threatens us. It makes us, you know, if somebody said to you, for example, you, you've got to give up meat and you've got to be a vegetarian, that's really threatening. People say, no, no, or maybe 20 years ago, somebody said to you, uh, or me, uh, you've got to stop smoking because it's killing you. Well, I say, well, I like smoking. So a lot of the things that we think we're being asked to give up, uh, it's a struggle because, of course, so much of, of, of these things, these patterns are habits, things we've done all our lives. And when somebody comes along and says, you got to change all this, our first instinct, and I completely understand this, is sod off, mate. I don't want to. I like my life the way it is. Mm-hmm. So just to change the habits, then are the guidelines clear enough? So let's take COVID-19, for example. You know, we've spent eight months glued to the news every evening to, to learn about the impacts of COVID because it's it could knock on your door at any stage. Climate change, then potentially equally, if not more grave. We're not as engaged in this. Is that because it's in the distant future to us or it's on the West Coast of America or it, is it not close enough to home for us to get the point? Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. I mean, for example, when, when you know, the Western seaboard is underwater, then uh, after we've got through the news reports, eventually the climatologists get a, ch- get a turn and they start pointing out that we're getting extreme weather events because they're, they're fueled by additional precipitation, et cetera, et cetera. And for a while, there's a raising of awareness. The problem is keeping that focus. That's been so, so difficult because as we said earlier, we're all busy with our lives. We've, we're, you know, things to do, places to go, and also other things to worry about. And I think this is a conversation I've had with many people in the media, uh, and that is, you know, where's the climate space? And they'll say to me, well, come on, John, be reasonable. Uh, you know, it's all about coronavirus these days. And before that, of course, it was all about Brexit. And before that, it was all about the recession. And I'm kind of saying, okay, guys, I, tr- I completely understand these are very important issues. But there's a the big picture. We've really got to keep an eye on the big picture. And the big picture is the climate one. But do you think we can just manage one crisis at a time then, be it, you know, the, the, the economy or COVID is the immediate, the, the manageable? 
Yeah, I think so. There was a saying about a particular American president from back in the 70s. They said that, could he really walk and chew gum? In other words, can he do more than one thing at a time? And I think we're going to have to figure out how to walk and chew gum here. We're going to have to learn to deal with the, the current crisis, whether it's Corona or Brexit or political crisis, while keeping a weather eye, a sharp eye on the bigger picture. And this has been a problem. And I think especially it's been a problem because um, the media, even in Ireland, it continues to, to over-represent a tiny handful of very articulate, very clever uh, individuals who keep popping up like the proverbial uh, bent penny on radio shows uh, with basically guff and nonsense, if I'll, I'll say that with the greatest of respect. And they're, they're, they represent a tiny, tiny handful of uh, public opinion. However, as I say, because they're entertaining and because they're always apparently available, they are overrepresented. And, and this is a, a problem because, uh, look, any of us would want to believe this isn't the case. And therefore, when you hear some guy on the radio saying, oh, that's only old rubbish and God controls the weather, all that kind of stuff, it is tempting to say, okay, maybe that guy is right. Maybe maybe I don't have to worry. Now, I'll be honest, I would like to believe it too, because I don't want the, the, the messaging that I'm involved in sharing. I don't want it to be true. I, I'd be perfectly happy if, if somehow or other the, the, the United Nations came out and said, listen, guys, great news. Climate change is not a problem. Great news. We've tackled biodiversity loss. I would be the happiest retiree in journalism. I would hang up my hat with, with a heart and a half, and I would promise never to haunt the airwaves about it again. But unfortunately, Louise, there's no sign of, of my particular shtick going out of fashion anytime soon. So 98% of climatologists will attest that, you know, this problem is man-made, that we trust science in every aspect of every day of our lives. Why is there this reluctance? Or indeed, why are there actual deniers like the um, unknown you you referred to just a second ago <laughs> look as i say the deniers have um i guess they have a hill start if i can put it that way in the sense that they offer the message that any rational person would want to believe and that is everything is fine and don't be alarmed and continue business as usual I'd buy that. If it weren't for the fact that it wasn't true, I personally would be much happier with that messaging than with the messaging that I'm involved with. So, so I think the deniers and the delayers, I'll be honest with you, these days, Louise, very few of them are prepared to actually fess up as straight up deniers. They've kind of changed their game and they now come on and say, well, of course we all take climate seriously, but not now. We've got a recession on, we've got the virus on some other time. So effectively, they've, they've realized that it's no longer fashionable to openly deny it. So what they've moved on to is, let's see if we can delay it for another few years. And what's the media's role in, in this and the role they play with dissenters? In the 10 plus years that I've been in the public domain communicating this, uh, greatly exaggerating and over-representing dissent. This has been a constant theme, and it's something that that is heartbreaking. Where you know, even even major shows, you know, uh, showcasing you know straight straight up contrarians with with no uh, real scientific um, backing at all, and that's unfortunate because it keeps bogus arguments alive. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the instructions then, John, because and and to compare it again to COVID nineteen, the guidelines there are very clear. You wash your hands, you wear a mask, you reduce your social contact. With climate change, is there too much to digest? Is, does the hill look too steep? We have to break it down. And we have to say, we have to live within limits. There are, as I described them, these hard limits out there. Now, for example, 
Sweden, a very wealthy country, a cold country. Uh, the average Swede accounts for about four tons of carbon dioxide a year. Now, it's still too much. But compare that to the average Irish person, 13 tons of carbon dioxide a year. Now, nobody would say that a Swede, uh, that they're poorer or live in worse quality housing or have a poorer quality of living than we do. In fact, probably a higher quality. But because they have seriously addressed climate, climate change, they've delivered lots of good things, such as warm houses that are extremely easy to heat. In fact, in many cases, houses that require no external heating at all. And they've dealt with and squeezed a lot of the carbon out of their system so that they're able to live to a good standard of life with low carbon. Now, take a country like Ireland. Okay, are we the worst in the world? No, we're not. Uh, the US, for example, it's almost double that. So that's catastrophic. But if you take it globally and you were to divide out the carbon available for the future, it's no more than maybe two tons per person per annum for the rest of the century. Now, that's maximum. So we've got to go today from 13 tons to two tons. Now, obviously, the, the, it'd be a lot easier if we were starting from where Sweden is starting, where they had used their technology, used their wealth to actually decarbonize their societies. But we haven't. We've just been buried our head in the sand, and it has actually put us at a competitive disadvantage. The future is going to be tough. Make no bones about that. However, there are so many things that we can do better. There are so many decisions that we can make that can lead us down the path of a safer, cleaner future. So come back to the reduction of our carbon. If you could give three bite-sized um, options of how we do that at home on a daily basis, something that we can do immediately starting now. What are they? Sure, absolutely. Let, let's be honest. The first one, right, is um, change your diet. Um, we need to move away from, first of all, pretty much eliminate red meats. Um, and most meats generally, we all eat far too much meat in this country, far too much meat, and we don't need to eat red meat. You eliminate that, and globally, we know this, and we've been told this by, by uh, various international agencies, we've got to move away from meat. And the reason why meat is such a problem is the livestock industry globally is the number one driver of biodiversity loss, habitat loss, rainforest clearance. And mostly it's cutting down these areas to produce the food to feed to livestock. In the world today, there are 70 billion farmed animals, 70,000 million, 10 times more than there are people. And all of that, that enormous herd, feeding them is what is, is causing us to cut the world down. There is enough world to feed humans, there isn't enough world to feed 70,000 million farmed animals. So we, as a society, need to move the heck away from farming animals as fast as possible and to move towards the Dutch model where they farm food to be eaten directly by people. I think in agriculture, we need to think smart. In transport, we need to, for example, at the moment, there's 2 million cars on the road in Ireland. That's far too many cars. We do not need 2 million cars. The average car sits outside the average home for about 95 to 98% of the, of the week. It's simply sitting parked someplace. So all of us don't need as many cars. We only need a fraction of the number of cars that we have, and we need to replace those cars as soon as possible with electrics, and we need to switch to investing in clean public transport along with it. Now, the next big one, and you did ask me for three big ones, here's number three, is how we heat our homes in Ireland at the moment is catastrophic. We're burning vast amounts of fossil fuel energy, most of it heating up the outside. What we need to do is invest big time in 
energy reduction, which basically means retrofitting uh, and heat pumps and new technology. And of course, overall in Ireland, we need to electrify everything. We need to electrify our transport system, electrify our home heating system. And this is all, by the way, technically completely possible. So we've we've spoken about changing our habits, but also changing the way this message is communicated from an argument or from a despairing conversation to something positive. So what does that take from me or you or any of us? How, how do we improve this conversation and get this message across? We need to talk about it, right? This is, like so many other issues in Irish life, pushing this one under the, under the rug, not talking about it or only talking about it in angry terms has been very unhelpful. So it's out in the open now. We're having conversations like the one we're having today because they're about our future, about our shared future and how we want to shape it. And I think we as citizens should have a say in the kind of future that lies ahead. And that's why engagement, talking about the issue and putting choices out to citizens so that let the public and the public can be surprisingly um, insightful in this. Uh, to give you an example, I spent a couple of days back in 2017 at the uh, Citizens Assembly on Climate Change, where basically 100 ordinary members of the public were brought together to discuss climate change. And these are people who were literally picked off the street randomly, and they were only addressed by experts. And at the end of that session, they produced a series of really insightful observations and guidance, which have since then have helped to shape climate policy in Ireland. And that was just regular citizens listening to experts and coming to logical conclusions. And for me, it was a it was a spine-tingling moment where you realize that if you're honest with people and you don't give them BS, if you if you tell them the truth, don't frighten them, but tell them the truth. We're all grown-ups. We can deal with it. And if not just tell them the truth, but then give them possible solutions, then we discover how brave we are. And we've seen that. Um, on the other hand, if people just play to our negative instincts, uh, to our fear and our rejection, well, then that's what you feed. I suppose, you know, the thing that comes out is the thing that you feed. And the, the Citizens' Assembly, for me, was a wonderful example of um, people being prepared to look the future in the eye and demand a better future. And I think equally, the children's climate strike well, strikes in 2019, they were exactly that. It was people power. It was incredibly emotional thing, I might say, to be involved. I, I had a, a lump in my throat that it's hard to describe uh, when I went with my kids on that March, on the 15th of March, 2019. It was, an, it was an extraordinary day. And you asked earlier about this whole movement of energy. I felt it that day. I thought something changed in the world. And I thought this gives me hope. And I'm not a person renowned for my, for my hopefulness. And I'm wary, by the way, of hope. I think hope uh, can be short for hopium. It can be short for this idea that something will come along. I believe in optimism, but not hope. Uh, hope uh, it always implies that somebody else is going to fix it. Nobody, Louise, is coming to fix climate change for us. We're going to have to do it ourselves. And you've given us solutions and uh, you've given us positivity too, John. And for that, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Delighted, Louise. And thank you very much for, for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and stay tuned for another how-to with the Communications Clinic.